0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Dr. Adrian Scott from the Department of Psychology at the University of Bath talks about eyewitness recognition and the reliability of the human memory in these situations. I'm delighted to welcome this evening to give the Gulp Lecture Dr. Adrian Scott from the Department of Psychology here at the University. Adrian is a lecturer in the department and has a particular interest in forensic psychology, although I'm not sure from the title of this evening's course whether that is what we're covering. It sounds rather intriguing, and I think from what I can understand <coughs> about it, um, it's going to show what an unreliable bunch of witnesses we are and how <laughs> what we remember isn't actually what we see. So I'll just hand over to Adrian. Thank you. Thanks very much. This is very nice and thank you very much for coming along tonight. I was a bit scared that I'd be in a room on my own, so it's good to have some people to talk to. I'll just do a brief outline of what I'm going to cover today. Firstly, I'm going to be talking about evidence that's used by the criminal justice system. Then moving on to variables in the study of eyewitness testimony. This will just give you a little bit of background into the types of things that psychologists look at when investigating the reliability of eyewitness testimony. Then I'm going to introduce post-conviction DNA testing and how that's opened up a new area in which we're able to test the validity of eyewitness testimony. Then I'm going to move on to a particular court case, which is of the burglary of a bank in Melbourne in Australia and the man in the woolen mask, which was a study that I conducted as a result of the robbery in Melbourne. Having covered that, I hope to talk a little bit about police identity parades and how you can improve them, and also to end with the reconstructive nature of memory. People often perceive memory as being like a video recorder. So something will happen, we record it. When we're asked about that at a later date, we almost rewind the tape and tell people what happened. In fact, memory is a constructive process. And I'll be using a few personal examples for better or worse judgment as the talk goes on, sort of say how these sorts of things have affected me and I've been fallen and foul to them in certain respects. Before I start, I'm just going to show you this picture. I've shown this picture a number of times to students and talks that I've been to. And some people can tell what's wrong with it straight away. And other people look at this picture for hours and have no idea what is wrong with it. What is wrong with it is it's all the same face, just with different hairstyles. And it's on a website where they say, if you want to rob a bank, wear a wig. Um, I first got introduced to this sort of concept when I was an undergraduate student, and I was in a first-year class in a lecture theatre somewhat like this. And my lecturer was talking away, and an irate woman from the back of the room screamed at him, came down to the front of the class, told him that he'd ruined her life, called him all these horrible words that I won't repeat and stormed out. I was absolutely gobsmacked. After this, the lecturer said, right, that was a setup. up I'd like you to tell me what you can remember about the person. What I could remember was that it was a woman and that she had bright red lipstick. Other than that, I had no idea whatsoever. The person that actually acted out the scene was our department administrator who's somewhat of an accomplished amateur dramatist, <laughs> And... Um, <laughs> She got a little bit upset because some people said that she was only four foot tall, when in fact she's a lot taller than that, so she wanted that to be clear in this talk. So, evidence used by the criminal justice system. You have direct evidence and you have circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence is what we're going to be talking about today, eyewitness testimony. And this is where you have the identification of the accused person who committed the crime. But you can also have circumstantial evidence, which is evidence that is not obtained from an eyewitness. So you might have letters of the threatening letters. You might have fingerprint evidence. You might have a person that has a weapon similar to that of the murder weapon. You might have eyewitness statements stating that somebody was in that vicinity at the time of the crime. These are circumstantial because... Yes, if you put a lot of these together, you can create a conviction, but on their own, they're insufficient. Okay. And because of that, eyewitness testimony is often the key factor in gaining a conviction. The paradox of eyewitness testimony, let me just read this out. Judges, defence attorneys and psychologists believe that eyewitness identification evidence is about the least trustworthy form of evidence yet jurors have always found it more persuasive than any other form of evidence. If you're a juror at a court case and a young woman stands up and says, that is the person that attacked me, that's very, very powerful. Why would you doubt it? It's not in their interest to identify somebody else because they want the attacker to go to jail. And because of that, by and large, the eyewitness testimony has a huge impact But research has shown that we fall foul to certain errors that affect our accuracy. So, what types of variables are there when we're looking at eyewitness testimony? This is by Gary Wells, and if anybody is interested in anything that I talk about today, which hopefully you will be, Gary Wells is a good person to look up on the Internet. He is the main person with regards to eyewitness identification evidence, And he's got a good website with lots of links to articles and I think you can take part in online experiments and things like that. But he distinguishes between estimator and system variables. Estimator variables are those that affect the accuracy of eyewitness testimony but cannot be controlled for by the criminal justice system. So, for example, if an attack takes place at night, it's not well lit. If it happens for a split second it's going to affect the accuracy. If the person has a weapon, research has shown that you look at the weapon rather than the person that's carrying the weapon. These are things, obviously, because you don't want to get stabbed with it or shot with it. These are factors that we can look at in experimental conditions, but there's nothing we can do about them. We cannot have an influence over those types of variables, hence why they're called estimator variables. System variables, on the other hand, are factors that affect the accuracy of eyewitness testimony but which we can have an influence over and these are the types of things i want to talk about today the way that we interview somebody can have an impact on their identification accuracy the way that we construct a lineup can affect eyewitness accuracy so a lot of researchers looked at system variables because there's something we can do about them that's not to undermine estimator variables you can conduct studies and then In the court of law, you can say this will have had an impact, but you cannot control for those. So it's an important distinction to make. That's all of the sort of technical bits and pieces out of the way. So, post-conviction DNA testing. I'm pretty sure that everybody is familiar with DNA testing, and it's the idea that each of us has a genetic fingerprint, if you like, that can distinguish us from anybody else. In the past, they didn't have... The technology to be able to test people's DNA, but they kept, in certain cases, evidence that can be DNA checked. As a consequence, in 1990, when, well, in the 1990s when DNA testing came in, they went back to all the evidence they've had from previous cases and ran DNA checks. And in America, there were 62 cases in which DNA testing was found to exonerate the previously convicted person. So 62 people were in prison that shouldn't have been. Five were actually on death row. And it didn't say whether they were alive or dead at the time. So it could have been a little bit late for them. But the key thing here is that 84% involved confident yet mistaken eyewitness identification. So when you're asking for proof that there are mistakes that occur, here it is in effect. Okay. Right. This is a case that took place in Melbourne, Australia, some years ago now. And two hooded men carrying Shaunoff shotguns robbed a bank and stole about 21,000 Australian dollars, which at the time was about 10,000 pounds. Now, part of the incident was captured on the bank security system. And someone was charged for the event more than two years later. Now, This is where I want to make a distinction. The person that was charged with the offence was suspected because of known associates and also for knowledge that that person had a weapon that was similar to that that was used in the offence. Now, when I was asked to take part in this and conduct research based on it, I had a bit of a discussion with my supervisor, and he pointed out that the key distinction here is, okay, so there's reasonable suspicion of this person, but does that make it right to use biased witness identification evidence? So I'm not commenting on whether this person was innocent or guilty, I'm just trying to highlight the way that the evidence that was admitted in court was unreliable. Okay? So usually, an eyewitness is asked at some later stage, by reference to what they saw, what they witnessed, to identify the offender. So this would be where you're walking along the street, you see an incident, you report it to the police, and you're asked what you saw. In this case, witnesses were asked whether they could make an identification by reference to photographs taken from the bank's security camera. So these weren't people that were present at the time of the crime. These were people from outside of the actual crime itself. So why was this? The inclusion was justified on the basis of their past familiarity with the person. One of the witnesses was a friend of a friend who would known the accused for about 15 years and the other person was a work colleague who had been working with the accused for about a year at the time of the offence. So, In theory, I don't think there's a huge problem with using known people to identify somebody. But that's the picture that they were shown. And what this is, is the accused, as you can see, obviously. And he's got a balaclava, hence the man in the woolen mask. Get it? And he's got a shotgun in his left hand, a bag to put the dosh in in his right hand. And then he's got work boots and sort of um, work-type overall trousers and a black sort of bomber jacket. Okay. Now, the witnesses were told that the police suspected the individual. And both witnesses commented how the clothing and characteristics of the person in the photograph were similar to those of the accused. So they said, yeah, that could be the person that you're asking me about. Now, I know you think that's a bit unreasonable, so there was another picture. And I find this a little bit hurtful, but they commented on the size of his nose. And And it was actually a critical point in the trial, was that he had a rather large nose, this man... And they used that as support for it being him. But in the actual court case, both witnesses went beyond the point of similarity to say that they identify the person in the photograph. So they started off saying, yes, it could be that person. But actually, when it came to court, they said, it is that person. And he went to jail. So when I went out to Australia to do a placement year, I met up with a, a man that was quite a remarkable man, Don Thompson, and a judge had come to him about this case because he wasn't happy with the way that the evidence had been prepared. And the problem was that the identification of the accused by the two witnesses should not have been admitted as evidence. That was the argument of the judge. And why is this? Firstly, witnesses were led to believe that the accused person was in the photographs. There's no reason they couldn't have said, can you have a look at these photographs and tell me if you recognise the person? But they didn't. They said, we think this is somebody. Do you agree? Secondly, witnesses were shown single photographs of the accused. There must be other pictures from other robberies that they could have put in in a spread and then asked to almost select which one they think could have been the accused. Now, there's problems with that as well, which I'll come on to in a moment, but it would still have been better than only showing them the one picture. Next, the face of the accused was not visible. How good are we at identifying people when we haven't seen their face? This is a story that I was debating whether to share with you or not, but I feel fairly comfortable, so I'm going to. Billy Connolly went around the world, and one of the things he did was strip naked and run through the Pinnacles in Australia, which is a desert area with some sand blocks. A friend of mine and I went out to Australia and we thought we'd replicate it. So we got bored in the day, so we bleached our hair in the morning and drove for about five hours to these pinnacles to take a kit off to run through and take photos. When the photos came back, we couldn't tell who was who because we had very similar bottoms. (laughs) And the point is that the only way that we could differentiate between each other was because I knew that he'd gone first and I'd gone second. But it just shows you that because normally our hair colour's different, because we'd removed that distinguishing factor with similar height, similar be- beard, build, and obviously you don't see the back of yourself that often, it was, it was practically impossible. So think of that in this context. With the face not visible, that could have been me in the photograph. It could have been a number of people in the photograph. Finally, the clothing and physical characteristics could have been typical to a large number of people. The type of clothes that the person in the photograph had on were typical work clothes of contractors. So in the court case, they said, we think that this is typical to him. That's because he was a contractor. But that clothing would have been typical to a number of contractors in Melbourne at the time. So these were the grounds for the appeal of this case. Okay? So the man in the woolen mask. I know you've all been waiting. When I wrote this... Dissertation, it was the time that Leonardo DiCaprio, I think it was, had just done The Man in the Iron Mask. And I'm afraid to say that I'd seen it, and because of that, I thought, oh, that'll make a great title. And because I thought it would make a great title, I've just kept it because I still think it's quite good. So I apologize. (laughs) There's no other reason for it, really. Um, So I conducted a study to examine whether the effect of expectation on identification of a familiar person when their facial features were obscured, could have an impact on the decisions that people make. The participants were undergraduate students from the university in Australia. Now, before I go through this study, there is a proviso that I'd like to make, which is that when you conduct studies in a class setting, there are arguments that the generalizability of the findings is questionable. If I was to ask you to make an identification here, it can be argued that's very different from being in a course of law... And having to make an identification, then. So I'm not undermining that, but I still think that the findings of this study are quite, quite dramatic. Okay. So what did I do? Got a number of pictures here, and I'll try to go through them very briefly for you. This is Don Thompson, my supervisor, from Australia, and this is a friend of his that owed him a favour. <laughs> okay. And what we've got is. Don characteristically wears a vest, a white shirt, a dark tie, grey trousers, and carries a bag. Andrew, by contrast, wears sort of, I want to say beige, sort of safari type clothing of trousers, short sleeve shirt, and he carries a folder with him. And he told me the reason he does that is so that he always looks busy when he walks around campus. <laughs> so even if he's just on his way to get breakfast, he's got that with him so that people always think that he's a busy man. So What we did was took a picture of Andrew in Don's clothes, Andrew in his own clothes, Don in Don's clothes, Don in Andrew's clothes. Hopefully you can see the point of this. The idea was to get a typical clothing condition in which Don is either present or absent and an atypical clothing condition in which Don is either present or absent. The ones on the left are just so you can see what they looked like before. The ones on the right are the pictures that we actually used of them with the balaclava's on So, here's an example picture, and this is Andrew in Don's clothes. And we took away the background of the photograph to not influence people's decisions because this is the buildings on the campus that I was working at, and that is the type of building on the campus where he was working. So, we wanted to make it as sort of reliable as possible. Now, the best thing about this photograph is that at the time of conducting this, I just got them done and I was very happy. And a colleague of Don's, who was a good friend and been working with him for about three years, took this picture from me and said, I can tell Don anywhere. And it wasn't Don. So instantly I felt like I was onto something here. So what did we do? We went into classes, and I put up one of the four pictures, and I said to students, This is a member of staff that you know. Who do you think it is? So I didn't name the person but I told them it was somebody they knew. Now, when Don was in the photograph, it was somebody they knew. But when Andrew was in the photograph, it was somebody they didn't know. And we wanted to see what impact Don's presence or absence and his clothing, or lack of clothing, that came out wrong, but you know what I mean, had an impact on people's decisions. And this is what we found. When the clothing was typical to Don, 93% said... I think that's Don Thompson. And bear in mind that in half of those cases it was, and in half of those cases it wasn't. When the clothing was Andrews, i.e. atypical clothing to Don, I think it's about 82% of people chose another member of staff. Even though in half the cases Don was there, and half the cases he wasn't. Now the key thing with the atypical clothing condition was that selection of another member of staff wasn't random. There was a lecturer at the time called Drew, and he dressed in a similar but distinctly different fashion to Andrew, and 90% of the identifications chose him. So the clothing had a huge impact on people's decision. So, confidence. Confidence ratings were higher in the typical clothing conditions, but there was no difference between whether Don was present or absent. So, if the clothing fit, people were confident. If the clothing didn't, they were less confident. So clothing, and this is something that requires a little bit of explanation. I asked people to say what items of clothing they recognised. And to put it bluntly, they were rubbish. They would tick one or two (laughs) items of clothing. Maximum. And a student wrote down on the piece of paper... I don't understand the point of this because a pair of pants is a pair of pants. Bear in mind this was in Australia, so it's a pair of trousers is a pair of trousers. But the clothing manipulation had a huge impact on the decision of people. And the only way that we came to understand this was that anybody could wear a shirt. I very rarely wear shirts, but like this. But that wouldn't say that it's me. But if you then added that to the types of jeans I wear and the types of shoes I wear, and perhaps a bag that people recognise as mine, then you piece those together and the configuration of a number of different supporting factors reaches that positive conclusion that it is the person you know. So it's not a case of an individual item of clothing has caused them to say that is done. It's the configuration of those together that's caused that decision to be made. Okay? So... After I left, this actually went to the Board of Appeal and he was released on the basis of the reliability of the identification evidence. Like I say, I don't know whether he did it or not, but I think it's firm to say that the introduction of that evidence was very, very biased. Okay? So I've talked about expectation in a situation that's quite unique, and I talk about that study just because it was sort of the introduction to me to eyewitness testimony, and I still find it interesting to today. But there's also expectation in relation to police lineups. I've been in police lineups as an innocent person, before you think, and I've also been along to lineups to see whether the person that committed a crime is there or not. Now, when the police say to you, We'd like you to come along to go to a police lineup, you have the expectation that they've got the person because why would they ask you to go along otherwise so even though the police might not be suggesting in any shape or form that they've got the person you've got that expectation so that's to start with then you have foil bias and by foil I mean those people that take part in the lineup that aren't the suspect the classic case was in mm, Minneapolis I think it was where a black suspect was placed in an all white lineup. <laughs> and when the police were asked about it, they said, when we were looking for members of the lineup, we couldn't find any black people. And then they said, and anyway, there aren't very many black people in this county, so as such, we've actually got a representative population. Now, <laughs> I thought that was folklore until I was reading the other day and actually saw it quoted somewhere so I thought excellent I can use it. But that's an extreme case. But think of it in a more subtle way. You've been arrested. You've spent a night in the cells. You're then brought out for the lineup. The other people in the lineup might be on their lunch break, might have a day off. They get drawn in. It's not the same distinction as a black person compared to a white person, but I would imagine that there's a difference in terms of the appearance of those people. Whether they look worried, whether they look relaxed, whether they look like they haven't washed properly, whether they, although I suppose that's not necessarily the case. But you've got these other suggestions that can give you an inkling as to who the person is. Okay? And the final thing that I want to talk about with police identity praise is presentation bias. This has changed now, but in the past, members of the lineup were presented at the same time. And this is the classic situation where you have the one-way glass. You walk in to a dark side. They're on the other side. They get asked to stand up, and your job is to see whether you can identify the person that committed a crime against you. I've been along to one of these, and what happens is rather than identifying the person that attacked you, you end up doing a best fit. And you normally have eight people, and what I did, which is awful because it happened after i Conducted the study on the fallibility of eyewitness testimony, was I walked along and I said, definitely not, definitely not, definitely not. Could be, maybe. And you find yourself doing a comparative analysis. So rather than saying that's the person, I excluded the people that it couldn't be. So if you think about it, if they've suspected somebody and they've been brought in, and it just so happens they know, you know, they were at the wrong place at the wrong time but you happen to pick them because they look most like the person that attacked you, you could be making a false identification there and then. So what Gary Wells and others argue is that you should have a sequential lineup, And this is where you get shown people one at a time. And after each person that's arrived, when they leave, you have to say yes or no. So that way, you're not making a comparative judgement. But also... You don't get told how many people you're going to see. And because of that, you can't then wait until the end and go, it was that person. They'll say, that's it now, thank you, you weren't able to make an identification. Now, what's happened in this country, and certainly in Bath, because I went to another identification lineup not so long ago, is that they now have video clips of individuals. This is good because they can have a database of video clips of other people to put in the lineup. And as a result, you get people that look more similar. But they show you the clips one at a time. So in that sense, it's a huge improvement. But certainly a couple of years ago, and I don't think anything's changed, they still let you look at them a number of times. So they've taken on board some of the suggestions, so you don't have this direct comparison, but there is still this issue that you can look through a few times and try to pick out the best fit. Now... I've presented the sequential lineup as sort of being the way that it should be, but it's also had a number of problems. On the one hand, it reduces the risk of falsely identifying an innocent person. And bear in mind, this has been taken into account in the experimental setting. So they will perform a mock crime, and then they will construct lineups in which the person isn't present. And what they found was with a sequential lineup, people were less likely to pick an innocent person. But when the guilty person was present, there was also less likelihood of picking the guilty person. So it's a little bit of a weighing situation. You want the maximum chance of catching the guilty person at the minimum risk of wrongly convicting somebody else. So there's no perfect way of balancing those two. But certainly within this country, with the sequential lineup, they've gone in the right direction, I would argue conscious of time the reconstructive nature of memory then this is the bit that I think is the most interesting schemas are a cognitive system that help us organize and make sense of information and it's an organized package of information that stores our knowledge of the world I don't know what you guys experienced but when I was young we used to have said nights for meals so Wednesday night was fish and chip night Thursday night lasagna night Friday night we allowed us some fizzy pop oh yes okay now, if somebody had asked me at that time, what did you do on Wednesday, I can guarantee that I would say I had fish and chips. Now, the question is, do I remember having fish and chips, or do I know that every Wednesday I have fish and chips, and as a result, I think I remember it? Does that make sense? Similarly, if I was to ask you about going to a restaurant, you know that you go in, you wait to be seated, you sit down, you get the drinks menu, you order a drink, you order your starters, you might order some more drinks, depends on the audience I've got here. You then have your main course, could be some more drinks. Then you have your dessert, a cup of coffee or something, you pay your bill and leave. Now, if an incident occurred during that time and you were asked what happened that day, you might recount every aspect of that schema, your knowledge of that situation. But it doesn't mean you remember paying, but you know that you must have. So we're reconstructing our memories based on our knowledge of the world. And it can also be presented in visual maps. I've got two examples of this. One is I used to live on one side of town and then I moved to the other side of town. Some nice people who were lost pulled up and asked me for directions. And I said, oh yeah, you want to go down there, you want to turn right, you want to go over the bridge, turn right again and then you want to keep going and then you can't miss it, as a pub on the left. And I went on and on and on and at the end of it they said to me, isn't there an easier way? And I said, actually, yeah, you can just go straight down there. And what I'd done is I'd directed them via my old house because my visual image, my cognitive map of the town, focused on that area. So when I was initially asked, I didn't even think that they could just go straight down the road. I took them all the way past my old house, practically, and drove them around town. Another example was, I said that I've been along to an eyewitness parade. It was many years ago now, but I got a bit of a... Beating in a club in Bath. And it went to court. And I was asked about what happened by the defense. And I said, Well, I was in the club, a guy punched me. I spoke to the bouncer, he carried on punching me. Then another person punched me, I fell to ground. And then a group of bouncers came along, and one bouncer took me to the door, and the other group of bouncers took the two guys that attacked me and walked them past me and out the exit. And the defense said to me, Are you sure that's what happened? I said, Yes. I can remember seeing them walking in front of me and then there was a long corridor to the door and I said they stopped me there, pushed the other people out and from outside they were shouting at me to say words to the effect of we haven't finished this yet with a few expletives. And he said to me, well, that's not what happened. They were put out of the side entrance to the club. Now, my knowledge of that club was that there's only one way in and only one way out. So what must have happened is that when I got to the edge and I looked out, I saw the two guys out there shouting at me. So the only way I knew that they could get there was to have walked the same way as I did. And I can still remember seeing them walk in front of me. But they weren't because they were taken out of a door to my right. So it can have a huge impact on your memory. Because you remember glimpses and then you reconstruct to make sense of what your memories tell you. Okay? Stereotypes, an extension of this. Widely shared generalizations about members of a social group, usually highly simplified images and often derogatory, and they can be central aspects of prejudice and discrimination. Years ago now, and I'd like to think that the study wouldn't work anymore, they used to show a sort of sketch drawing of a white man with a knife and a black man with a briefcase. And they would flash it up and then ask people what they saw. And most people said they saw a white man with a briefcase and a black man with a knife. Because the stereotype they had distorted what they'd seen. On a lesser level, you're walking along a street and you see a very nice car parked on the side. And you see somebody with a hooded top, coat, Trousers that barely cover their bottom. I don't understand it myself. And you stop and look because you think, what's going on here? The person pulls out their keys, opens the door, drives off, and you say, oh, silly me. Same situation, but it's a person with a suit and a briefcase. You don't even look. And you miss the fact that they pull out their car-breaking-into kit. I don't know what that is. But, they, you know, I've seen it on the telly. You just go, kunk, and you're in. But you don't look at it because your stereotype is saying that it fits. Now, I know there's some mature members of the audience this evening, but I used to work in a supermarket. And do you know who the worst shoplifters are? (laughs) Old ladies. (laughs) And what they do is they come in with their shopping carts and they can't, you know, a basket's awkward, so I go, oh, not at all. So they go along and they go to the chickens. Jump, jump. They go to the steaks. Jump, jump. And they walk straight out the door. And I've been there because my job used to be you know, crime control, and I'm there watching a scruffy guy, thinking, oh, look, he looks dodgy. Meanwhile, this nice, lovely little old lady is asking me to help her out the door with half the shop in her basket. (laughs) But my stereotype doesn't make me think that's the person that would rob the shop. So again, it's changed the perception of what you're seeing and what you're looking out for. I'm sure that none of you are here. (laughs) But incidentally, I, I joke at that, but when I used to go into work, I used to have the security guards following me. And then they'd go, oh, sorry, Agent, I didn't know it was you, because I used to dress like a typical shoplifter. I'd have a baseball cap on, you know, a pair of jeans and a top, and they would follow me half, you know, for a good hour or so while I'm just potting around. And then they'd go, oh, it's you. And, you know, you just think, crazy. Meanwhile, all the ladies are running out of the shop with their cuts. okay. Leading questions, then. How are we doing time? Good. When we ask people certain questions, we can have an influence upon what they remember. So let's imagine there's been a car accident, and you're asked, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? Then compare that to if you're asked, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other? And this is the work of Elizabeth Loftus. And again, if anybody is interested in this field of research, she's got a wonderful website as well. Now, what they found was when the word hit was used, the average speed was 34 miles an hour that people estimated. But when smashed was used, 41 miles an hour. Now, if you think of that in a built-up area, that's the difference between just going over the speed limit a little bit and going quite, quite fast, isn't it? But then it has an ongoing effect did you see any broken glass? Now, that in itself could be deemed to be a leading question because if a police officer asked you, you if you saw broken glass, you might think, there must have been some. So 14% of people said yes when the word hit was used, but 32% of people said yes when smashed was used. And in actual fact, there was no broken glass. <coughs> so this is just an example of the way that questioning can have an influence on what you remember. And this isn't something that we consciously do. It's not that people are being dishonest. It's that you're questioned perhaps on day one about something. And then when you come to remember the situation in a week's time, two weeks' time, or however long it is, you've then instilled that information in your memory. How many people can remember what they were doing when they were about four? <laughs> mm. Some people can, and some people claim to be able to remember earlier. A number of people that have really, really early memories also have photographs of that incident. And what happens is you do something funny when you're about one or two. Then when you're about seven or eight, you're going through the photo album, and your mum or dad says to you, do you remember this? This is when you... And they recount a story. Then what happens is when you're 19, 20, onward and upward, you will then tell people, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me when I was one or two, and you go into this story in elaborate depth and you remember it happening. But your memory is based on the information that somebody else has given you years later. Okay? And here's a little picture trying to show you how schemas can influence the way that we remember things. In the top situation, this is where they've talked about hit, and the cars have obviously collided. But it's much less of a collision than the schema that's generated when the word smashed is used. And Elizabeth Loftus has done studies in which she's used bumped, contacted, lots and lots of different phraseologies that have an impact on people's memories. She's even had it where people have watched a clip of a car driving across just an empty road, and in some situations she said to them, How fast was the car going when it passed a barn? Now there was no barn. But later on, people have said, oh, yes, I remember there being a barn in the background that it drove past because it's been suggested during the interview. Okay. Oh, look at this. Perfect. Well, actually, we'll see. This is the final thing I want to talk about today. And this is my, this is my man, Don Thompson. And the question is, is he a rapist? A woman... accused Don Thompson, who is a memory expert, of having raped her. And Don was called in and had to take part in an identification parade. How? I'm not expecting you to guess. (laughs) And as you can see, he's still got his white shirt on, and I bet he's still got a vest on underneath, and I bet just down his side he's got the bag. So you can see that he's got consistency there. The alibi Don had, which I think is just fantastic, (laughs) is that the rape occurred while he was on television being interviewed about the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. (laughs) Not bad, eh? But again, how can this happen? And it's called, called source amnesia. The rape victim was in her flat, and the person came into the flat, forced her onto her bed, and raped her. And during the rape, because it was such a horrific experience, she watched the television. While she was watching the television, Don Thompson was being interviewed about the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. So she remembered Don correctly. She obviously remembered being raped correctly. But she mismatched the faces. Now, it's funny, because obviously Don loves it. You know, when he does talks, he uses this story often because... You can't really have a better example of the fallibility of eyewitness testimony than this. But imagine that you're walking along at night, and somebody's in trouble, you run across to help, the person says they're okay, you say fine and walk off and go home, you could be arrested. Because there are cases in which rather than the person remembering the attacker, they remember the person that helped them. So if ever you do decide to be a hero, which I wouldn't recommend if you watched that programme the other week, stay with them until the police get there, especially chaps. Otherwise, there's a good chance that you would be up on suspicion of the crime in the first place. And now I realise that I've just brought the mood down, so I want to pick it back up a little bit to finish. (laughs) These are all Don's anecdotes, but he had a student in Australia who didn't want to hand in their coursework. And those that work in academia have heard all the excuses under the sun, but this one was actually quite a good one. Her parents were in London on holiday, and she'd won a trip, and this is a true story, to go to London. But it just so happened to clash with the deadline of her coursework. So Don, being the man that he is, said, I'll give you an extension on one condition. says, okay, what's that? He goes, you go along to the hotel, you put a request for your parents to come down to the lobby without saying why, you stand at a pillar and you ignore them. She goes, okay. So she does this and her dad comes down to the foyer, walks up to her, looks her in the eyes and says, oh, I'm really sorry, I thought you were somebody else and walks on. (laughs) And the reason for that is he knew that his daughter was in Australia. He knew that she was studying for a degree in psychology and he knew that she had coursework. So there was no way that he would suspect that his daughter would be in London or that she would ignore him if he did happen to walk up to her. So it just shows you how the context of seeing people has a huge impact on the way that you interpret the situation.